obviously that first movie had its run stunted by the pandemic. Uh, but people loved it. It was doing really well. It had some gas left in the tank before theaters closed two years ago. I think at this point, we look at what our high end has been for the last few weeks of about 60 million, which is just slightly above what the first film opened to. I, at this point, I'm increasingly bullish. I think maybe it could even go a little higher than that based on the trends we're seeing and the fact that sentiment is really growing among families and consumers going back to theaters as we go into the heart of spring season. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios. I am here with Daniel Loria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. So this week we're going to talk about video game movies and the history of video game movies and their long trials and travails on the big screen, uh, in part because there was just the Uncharted movie and in part because there's a new Mario Brothers movie coming out in December, but mostly because of Sonic 2, the sequel to Sonic the Hedgehog, which opens this weekend. But first, uh, we want to talk about a couple of really big headlines and uh, performance and, and a little bit of weekend forecasting as well. So, uh, Daniel, what are we looking at today? Uh, a lot of movement here on the M&A front, Russ, as we know, the longer lasting effects of the pandemic coming into clarity here with some mergers, some acquisitions, a big, big circuit in Europe for sale. Let's start off with the Indian market. Rebecca, you reported earlier last week on two of the biggest multiplex chains in India going into a merger. Yeah, that actually is the two largest exhibition chains in the Indian market. Uh, PVR Limited, the largest by screen count, location count, and Inox Leisure. Uh, now, pending stakeholder approval from, because they're both public companies, uh, those will be merging to create a new cinema giant in the Indian market. Um, by far would be their largest chain. And this is a market, Daniel, that's been hit uh, very hard by the pandemic. In 2019, the Indian market as a whole brought in 1.6 billion. Last year, they were only at half a billion. So I am I did not do well in maths and percentages and all that sort of thing. But so I'm, I'm thinking it's around a third. If there are any people who are better at math than I am, and you can uh, you can, <laughs> you can chime in there. But um, yeah, it's a market that has been really slow to recover, and you have to imagine that that has an impact on these two uh, cinema giants going into a merger. And talking about major circuits and important markets, over in France, the second largest circuit in the country, CGR Cinemas, is up for sale. This is a family-owned and operated circuit now for a number of decades. It's actually the sixth largest circuit in all of Europe, guys. One of the principal players, not only in France, but in Europe as a whole. It's announcing a sale. It's looking for partners to come in as it wants to continue growing and expanding, not only in France, but also through some of its ancillary activities like the Ice Theaters PLF concept that they've debuted and are actually installing in other cinema chains around the world. And let's use this M&A activity to jump off to the global market when it comes to box office, because we've got some major releases coming up. And we also have our chief analyst at Box Office Pro, Sean Robbins, joining us to give you the latest on what will be hitting our screens. Sean, welcome. Uh, you are debuting your Batman voice for us. It seems like you're a bit under the weather. A little bit, uh, but you know, that comes with this time of the year and uh, we're just going to kind of grit our teeth and uh, I'm going to get through this as best I can. I'm loaded up on Dayquil at the moment, so I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> get, kick, kick its butt to the curb before cinema yeah. time. Sean, coming up this week, we have Sonic 2. It, it kind of almost feels weirdly like a full circuit moment with the first Sonic being one of the last films to really make an impact in the domestic box office before uh, COVID came along. And yeah, it's 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 definitely a bookend type moment. And, you know, fingers crossed, this is really this where we're kind of at the end of of what's felt like a very long transition to to reopenings and, and re removal of lockdowns. Granted, nobody can predict the future, but as far as what we've seen at theaters, both domestically and globally, the fact that Sonic has done so well in its overseas debuts, which Daniel is going to talk about, 
this is absolutely, you know, it's great timing. I think for families, this is going to be the movie that brings a lot of people back for the first time, probably since that original Sonic movie two years ago. Can you give us a, a range with uh, what your expectations are for this title compared to the first Sonic? It's tough to say because normally we would look at the first movie and use that as a basis for comparison. But obviously that first movie had its run stunted by the pandemic, Uh, but people loved it. It was doing really well. It had some gas left in the tank before theaters closed two years ago. I think at this point we look at what our high end has been for the last few weeks of about 60 million, which is just slightly above what the first film opened to. At this point, I'm increasingly bullish. I think maybe it could even go a little higher than that based on the trends we're seeing. And the fact that sentiment is really growing among families and consumers going back to theaters as we go into the heart of spring season. And this being that first tentpole family movie that really appeals to a lot of audiences. It's not just a family movie. It's a video game fan movie. And that's going to be a good cross section of of domestic audiences and global audiences for that matter. I mean, it's definitely doing well in those international markets, Daniel, which uh, kind of shores up Sean's bullish point of view here. Yeah, a great performance to start off with. It's already 5% ahead of the original Sonic in the same group of 31 markets where the film has already opened. $26 million it took in last weekend, led by the United Kingdom, where it opened at number one with $6.4 million. France, the second best performing market here, also a number one opening with $5.7 million. In third place, we have Australia with a number one debut at 2.8 million. You're starting to see this movie come out, do well in these sort of markets. Sean mentioned a bit earlier how this is the first family title that we're seeing in 2022. It really hasn't been since the release of Sync 2 in mid-December that we've had a title like this come into the market. As we know, Turning Red from Pixar going straight to Disney+. Plus is really leaving a gap for us to guess how this is going to do overall. But yeah, the overseas performance indicating some pent up demand for family audiences. And then uh, the other film that we have coming out this weekend is Amulence, the latest installment of Bayhem to multiplexes uh, across the world here. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Yahya Abdul-Mateen. They showed the trailer for this. I think they debuted the trailer for this at CinemaCon last year. I thought it looked quite good. Um, But in terms of box office, Sean, Michael Bay's recent movies have been a little hit or miss. So what are you you thinking here? So yeah, this is a movie appealing to male audiences. And I think we've seen since the start of recovery last year, that's been a very reliable audience coming back to the movies. It's an original film, but it's, it's also a Michael Bay film. And his name will sell this. Now, the trick will be that Sonic 2 is is going to appeal to a lot of that male audience as well. So looking at the overseas numbers, we, we probably would have hoped for maybe a little more. But he's also a very strong sell in North America in particular. I think this is the kind of movie that maybe five or six years ago we would have looked to opening mid to high teens. I'd be a little bit more conservative on that, given the competition in the market right now with Morbius out there. But uh, the positive reviews, especially relative to a lot of Michael Bay films, uh, could really give it that extra push this coming weekend. And then it was a soft debut for Ambulance in the overseas marketplace, where it only made around $4.5 million from its first batch of 35 markets. Not all of them being major markets. Probably the most notable one in terms of earning potential was Mexico, where it opened in number two behind the bad guys. Speaking to Sean's analysis in this segment, That's a good example of how Ambulance is performing as a counter-programming when opening against the family title. Let's see how that shakes out here in the U.S. And of course, both Sonic 2 and Ambulance are going to be competing against some holdovers. Now, the main one in terms of screen count is going to be Morbius, which of course had had a pretty soft weekend. Um, We're also seeing A24's Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I had a chance to see over the weekend and it made me weep uh, unexpectedly. I loved the movie. I did not love the sensation of wearing a tear-stained mask necessarily. It was uncomfortable. (laughs) With that and with Morbius, what kind of drops do you think we'll see? So Morbius is, is going to fall pretty hard, unfortunately. It's not only going up against Sonic, which will cut into its audience, it's going to be losing a lot of PLF screens to that and Ambulance. And we also just have to consider the reception to the film, which is, uh, let's say, lukewarm to be nice from audiences and very decisively not good from critics. Uh, I think we we can 
look at Venom as as the best comparison point here, but even the recent sequel to Venom had stronger audience reception and it still dropped 65% in its second weekend. So we could probably be looking at a much higher drop for Morbius. Uh, Everything Everywhere is an interesting case. Uh, We really haven't had quite as much insight into how wide it would be going. That can sometimes mean 1,000 theaters. It could mean 2,000. It could mean 3,000. A24 is one of the few indie distributors who has shown, especially recently, that they would go in more than 2,000 theaters. It's looking like this will be more of a staggered wide release in 1,000 or more. So having said that, that probably brings the forecast to maybe mid to high teens, 10 at the most, I would say. But if they go even wider than that, then it could contend for one of the studio's best openings. But it really looks like they have a lot of momentum on their hands either way, because this film is just really performing incredibly well in limited release. Sean, thank you so much for uh, for powering through and joining us. Uh, now we're going to ask you to please go drink a lot of water, take a lot of Dayquil and go lay on the couch <laughs> and rest up for CinemaCon because I want to, you know, big box office pro team all happy together. Got a gallon of orange juice with my name on it, so I'm going to go have a glass. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. And from there, let's go straight to our feature segment, where we will be doing a quick recap of the box office history of video game adaptations. Let's start off the way we did for the last time we did a box office history episode, when we spoke about all those Batman movies. Let's start with our elder statesman here, if I can call you that, Russ. May 28, 1993. Super Mario Brothers comes out from Disney. Where are you in life at this point? I must have seen it theatrically, but I it doesn't stand out as a big memory, which is uh, maybe the you know a, a good hint of of what this movie really represents. I will say that the Batman comparison is interesting because, by all accounts, I think the people who were principally involved with the Super Mario Brothers movie at the outset thought we can do for video game movies what Tim Burton did for Batman. Like, it was very clear that that was kind of what they wanted. Nobody had made a video game movie before. I think people had tried, but it had looked like, you know, I think everybody saw it for what it was, which was kind of like, how do we spin a story out of something that at that time inherently did not have a story? And that is a problem that continues to dog video game movies decades later. Like that's still the thing that chiefly makes them very difficult to make. Let's talk about that IP recognition, Russ, because I think that's a very important thing to bring in when we talk about these video game adaptations. You had seen video games as a plot concept come up in movies like War Games, in movies like Tron. When we talk about IPs, as you mentioned, this is the best IP you could have possibly imagined. What was the cultural impact of Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo Entertainment System during this time. You know, at this point, we're into the second generation of Nintendo consoles that are available globally. So the Super Nintendo is out at this point, which means we're multiple Mario games in. You know, uh, Mario had started as an arcade game. Uh, Super Mario Brothers became the pack-in game that came with with the original NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, which means it was a game that literally everybody had. If you had a Nintendo, you had Super Mario Brothers. If you had a friend who had a Nintendo, you'd played Super Mario Brothers. As far as recognizable IP went for video games, Super Mario Brothers, while not as enshrined as it is now, was still a really big deal. And the thing about this movie is that I think if it was not a Super Mario Brothers movie, if it was almost this exact movie, but was not ostensibly a Super Mario Brothers movie, I think people would look at it as this bizarro, like art punk. It's definitely yeah. has some Classic. like post-apocalyptic Johnny Mnemonic, you know, 80s yes. dystopian yeah. tackiness to it. I, I actually got interviewed for a documentary on this film, though I don't know if it's ever coming out. Oh, amazing. Um, but the, the, <laughs> the fashion of this film, they're like, we're going to make the dinosaurs vaguely BDSM. We're going to do a little bit of Blade Runner, a little bit of like 90s black PVC clothing. It was, uh, I love it. It's a well, bizarre and, and like film. the. You know, the, the it, there was sort of a revolving door of potential directors at, at originally, yeah. but the people that made this movie are the same people that created Max Headroom, which right. was this, you know, new media slash cyberpunk instant icon thing. And so you're like, oh, okay, like that kind of makes sense that they would do a video game movie, the first big video game movie. But then Disney bought into this late in the game. 
um, supposedly requested a lot of changes. Meanwhile, Nintendo, I think, is just kind of like, like this came relatively cheap rights wise, all things considered, you know, compared to what you would pay for for Mario rights now. I can I can only imagine what Illumination and Universal are paying and sharing to you know to Nintendo f- to make their new Mario movie. Um, but at the time, I think they paid a couple million bucks for this, which is like obviously a lot of money. But it's a bargain when you when you look at that potential, but right? But a bargain for I what mean, you're getting. I think the Batman comparison here is important on these multiple levels, including the director choice, where you have a group of filmmakers that maybe can go somewhere similar to where Tim Burton took Batman. There's a clear aesthetic goal that is beyond just making a quick movie and putting it out there. Everything around about this, from the costumes to the production design from that cast, spells out interesting movie. Ultimately, I don't know if you guys agree, this is a very forgettable title. There's very little about this movie I remember. Well, I think that, the you know, in looking at the comparison to, to Burton's Batman, I think the big deal here is that Super Mario Brothers had interesting casting. It had a lot of ideas. I think everybody had something they wanted to do with this movie, but it does not have a unifying vision. And ideally, that unifying vision should probably be the IP, should probably be the actual Super Mario Brothers game and concept. Batman has a unifying vision. Like Batman is the product of what appears to be a singular vision, despite the fact that hundreds of people worked on it. Like everything is funneled through Tim Burton's perspective. This movie has no perspective. It has no vision. It has a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas. But in the end, it it's like it, it's a big mixtape of stuff that doesn't really ever cohere. Uh, Rebecca might argue with me on this, but well, I just want to say, I mean, if, if you if you want to look at a generic, unmemorable video game adaptation, apologies to this film in advance, but the next one to hit movie theaters, Double Dragon. I, I mean, I, it was one of those that I watched on on VHS a lot as a kid. I don't even think I realized that it was based on a video game. Uh, and it was, it just kind of, for me, you know, fell into that kind of morass of a uh, 90s movies where kids were also ninjas. The point of all of this is simply that Super Mario Brothers is a weird failure because, I mean, it. if it wasn't the first, I think nobody would talk about it very much. It would be a curio. Because it's the first and because it's so spectacularly bizarre and because it is such a, a, a neon lit collection of oddities more than it is a, a like a unified story or idea Russ, i think there's a lot to talk about it oh, you're hurting my heart <laughs> but, here but, <laughs> but look it's not generic and and most and, and rebecca makes the good point it's like most of the movies that we could talk about in this segment we're just not going to talk about because that's all they are they're generic formless um at best they are slavishly devoted to ip um, at worst, they're not even that. They're just generic with no actual devotion to IP. So yes, I mean, that is, I think, the 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 fate of 70% of video game-based movies is that they just become generically forgettable. This movie is not that by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it, it's like you said, the, the difficulty of, of spinning a story out of a video game also the difficulty of spinning out a compelling character, compelling characters out of a property where I, by necessity, the lead character is kind of a semi-blank audience insert character. Literally one-dimensional. Literally. Like the definition of a one-dimensional character is what you have I, in, I, I, in, in these Raul, early Julia, video games. Raul Julia in Street Fighter, I mean, he, he did what he needed to do as the villain. I think Street Fighter gets to the relationship between certain types of video games and movies because Street Fighter is just a martial arts tournament movie as a video game. You know, it is all of all of the, you know, the Hong Kong tournament movies, you know, from Enter the Dragon all the way up to, you know, more clones than you can name. I, there's there's this joy and charm that it's a big pop culture homage throughout the entirety of that video game, making it potentially a quote-unquote easy title to adapt into a movie. And when Universal comes in with the rights, comes in with a big, big cast for this title. 
getting an A-list at the time star like John Claude Van Damme to play this this quote unquote title character like Guile, which is this U.S. Army guy, which absurdly has a Belgian accent throughout the movie. They get another A-lister from a very artistic uh, sensibility like Raul Julia. You mentioned him earlier, Rebecca, to play the villain. This seemed like it was going to be a big budget launch of a franchise releasing in Christmas 1994, opens to 6.8 million, sputters to 33.4 million. I think Street Fighter is interesting because, yes, Jean-Claude Van Damme is a huge star. And I think that you cast him in that movie more for overseas marketability because in the U.S. he was kind of on the decline. You know, he had done he had had a couple of really big movies. Um, but I think that hard target kind of disappointed. I don't know that time cop performed as well as anyone would have hoped. Um, and it's just like, he, he was like, you're getting into the mid nineties and Van Damme is not quite the, you know, the, the box office powerhouse that you would hope that he would be. And I think the movie kind of street fighter to me seems like let's do the things right that mario brothers did wrong um and so it looks more like the game it's they tried to cast it more appropriately but i think it's it it still kind of looks like dress up you know and it still kind of looks like a cartoon in a way it looks like a cosplay version of of what a video game movie should be like right yeah it does and like the fact that raul julia is in it is cool but it's also like wait why is raul julia in this what the what (laughs) and and i think that despite superficially doing some things right what street fighter seems to me is like the people who fundamentally were making the movie, which is to say bankrolling it and making some of the top level decisions, kind of talking down to the audience. And this is also a common thing. It's like, oh, these dumb kids will buy anything, you know? And it really just feels like as long as we kind of make it look like the thing, it's going to sell. And it's a very good indicator that that's not true, which uh, somehow didn't stop probably hundreds of other people from trying the exact same tactic in the future. You know, from there, from Street Fighter, we go, uh, Rebecca, you talked about, you know, being a Mortal Kombat household. My deep love of uh, my brothers would play the video games. I would watch them uh, as as much as I uh, roll my eyes at uh, people who watch other people play video games on Twitch. Like, I can't judge. I, that was what I did <laughs> growing up. Um, but a, a huge fan of the movie. That that was that was another War the VHS out uh, out one. I mean, you got Christopher Lambert. Just you hire him to be weird and enigmatic and say strange things. <laughs> that that theme song is the best movie theme song of all time. That Mortal Kombat. Um, you well, know, that one came out for, from New Line. It did pretty well. And, and then, I mean, Daniel, you can speak to the exact numbers, but its sequel, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, I really think looking back, it was my first experience of really looking forward to a movie and going to see it in a theater <laughs> and just being like, what the hell? Like, it's the so Batman bad. The and Robin experience. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah that totally. was my, my first, like, oh, come on now, really? <laughs> Well, there there are a couple of things too with Mortal Kombat. Number one, like the game was notorious because it was more, it was bloody, right? Street Fighter. Yeah, it, was, it was gory. There was Street, gore. My Street parents Fighters, didn't let me buy it. Play yeah, it. yeah. You know, I wasn't allowed to play that thing. So Street Fighter is is a fundamentally cartoonish. You know, it's the games are sprite based, which is, which it, it just is a, a way to say that you know ultimately it it kind of looks like an old school game, but it looks like a cartoon. You know. Um, Mortal Kombat was like motion capture, rotoscoped, and very bloody. Yeah, the characters ripping out each other's spines. It was great. You know, big headline driver, big sales driver. You got to also talk about two years before the release of this movie was the very, very successful home console release of Mortal Kombat, where it had been an arcade game. There'd been a couple of arcade installations. And then it comes to consoles like the Super Nintendo, promoted with this Mortal Monday event, which was, if you were of a certain age at the time, was a huge deal. Like, it was a very successful promotional campaign that really let everybody 
that is the target audience for something like a Mortal Kombat movie, like pounds into that audience that Mortal Kombat is a thing and that it's kind of cool, right? So then when the movie comes out, not too long after that, it's like that that audience is still there and still ready. And they were there to the tune of 23.2 million opening weekend uh, starting August 18th, 1995. Eventually got up to 70.5 million. Um, you know, it's 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 better than, than Street Fighter. It's better than Super Mario Brothers. It's sure as heck is better than the Double Dragon. It's by far the highest grossing video game adaptation up to this point. And that performance, Rebecca, is without the use of a star. The cast is maybe known among cult circles, among, you know, TV series circles, but they didn't have an anchor star the way that Super Mario Brothers did or the way Street Fighter had. They intended to have a star. I don't know if you guys remember, Cameron Diaz was supposed to be one of the headline actors in this movie. This would have come out a couple of months after her breakthrough hit in The Mask, but she had to drop out of filming. And that loss of that A-list star, I think maybe hurt its overall potential at the time at the box office. But a $70.5 million uh, theatrical run, we're seeing right now something that can work. We're seeing some potential. Unfortunately, that potential is derailed two years later with the film sequel. The production values here just drop off a cliff almost entirely. Uh, November 21, 1997 release date uh, here for this title around Thanksgiving weekend, opens to 16.7, but it ends up running to around half of the original's theatrical total, 35.9 million. What's your takeaway on why this was just dead on the water and the impact it had for video game adaptations as a whole heading into the 2000s? I don't even want to talk about this movie. This movie hurt me too much. It was so bad. The <laughs> acting was horrible. There was a, it's kind of infamous for if you look up Mortal Kombat Annihilation, like worst line reading ever. It's it's one of those that kind of makes the round in the, can you believe something this bad happened on the big screen? I mean, yeah, Daniel, it, it looked awful. The acting was awful. Um, it took the characters and the actors who, you know, we didn't have any big stars in the first one, but your, your big Mortal Kombat maniacs came to grow somewhat attached to these people. Um, and they just basically like mixed up the cast for the second one. It, it was a it was a big old mess. They had zero continuity. It was a cash grab. It looked like a cash grab and it couldn't grab any cash. There you go. That's exactly it. Hey, it's the New Line Cinema way, uh, you know, prior to a certain point, prior to Lord of the Rings. Talk about the transition from these 90s movies that they try out these big IPs like Mortal Kombat like Super Mario Brothers, like Street Fighter, doesn't really work out. But going into the 2000s, guys, we have the emergence of a different type of console, Sony's PlayStation, now dominant in the marketplace worldwide, and the first non-Nintendo and non-Sega Genesis mega hit. Lara Croft Tomb Raider, starring Angelina Jolie, coming out on June 15th, 2001, and guys, it looks like this one works. 47.7 million opening weekend, plays out to 131 million domestic. Russ, you're involved here tracking the film industry at this point. What's your take on this title's performance in its release in this oddly pre 9-11 time period in the United States? The Tomb Raider movie, the first one, uh, you know, it won its weekend. It performed well. Overall, I would actually say that Tomb Raider probably underperformed in general because it's like you've got Angelina Jolie just as she's really being Angelina Jolie, you know, like to have her in this movie is a big deal, uh, you know, and, and she's in the movie with her dad, which is interesting. Plus, you've got a game that is once again, like the original Tomb Raider games are essentially game versions of the Indiana Jones movies. Um, but with uh, a protagonist who has large polygon boobs, um, you know, which was a, a decision made to sell games and that worked very well, but also created, you know, a, an iconic character in her own right. It's, it's kind of an example of something going from uh, being very crass to maybe evolving into uh, something more meaningful, which is kind of the video game story in a lot of ways. And 
eventually that the franchise was remade so that uh, she would not have the polygon boobs and we would see that uh, different iteration of the franchise in turn be adapted into its own movie uh, just a few years back at that point. And would you believe it? Fanboys complain that she wasn't uh, big enough in the chest area. Of yes. course. And, oh, I, and, wow. I, and I will okay. say that the more recent Tomb Raider movie, the one starring Alicia Vikander, is actually, I think it's one of the better video game movies in terms of the, how it works as an adaptation, etc. Um like the Tomb Raider movie with Angelina Jolie is it's mostly just an adventure movie that shares the, the name of the character. You know, it's like and that's in part because, uh, you know, the games were so explicitly based on adventure movies themselves. So it, it's like Tomb Raider makes a lot of sense as an adaptation because it's just like, well, uh, it's really just an adventure movie that has a female lead. As long as the names are consistent and we, you know, have her in the right outfit and the whole thing, it's like we can pretty much do whatever we want, right? We don't we don't really need to have like a concrete character. We just like have Angelina Jolie there looking badass, acting badass. Like she can she has the charisma to pull it off. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I mean the movie has I think the the problems of the of the two Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider movies are that they resemble a lot of the other kind of uh globe-trotting, wannabe blockbuster, wannabe Bond adventure movies. You know, ironically, this one had a future Bond in it. Daniel Craig is in is in Tomb Raider. Um, but it's like it, the problems that the movie has are really just that it's like, well, let's, it's got a lot of plot noise, but it's not actually really about a whole lot. And as we were mentioning, this is the first of a stream of PlayStation IPs that are adapted into films in the 2000s. Now that the console generation is evolving into a different set of video games that have a little bit more fleshed out characters, that have better storylines to them. The next one up, I think a very forgettable film, July 2001, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, known at the time for being groundbreaking in terms of its visuals, opens to 11.4, but sputters to 32.1. This is another prime IP, for the PlayStation uh, landscape here. Wasn't really able to launch, but the one that follows that chronologically, Rebecca, we are talking about the only franchise to date that we can say has been a global hit when it comes to video game adaptations. Resident Evil from Screen Gems coming out on March 15th, 2002. Yeah, we're looking at a, a franchise now of, I, I want to six or seven films. I, I lose track because one of them was named the final chapter, but it was not the final chapter. No. Um, it's interesting that this film uh, should come up, Daniel, because I was actually able to do an interview with Martin Motzkowitz of Constantine Films, one of the production uh, companies behind Resident Evil. And that interview will be on boxofficepro.com uh, to coincide with CinemaCon because uh, Martin Moskowitz is, is getting an award there. But he mentioned something that was really interesting to me about that first Resident Evil, um, which is that this movie uh, was led by Mila Jovovich, but it was really also very heavily ensemble in nature. Um, and there was a conscious decision on, on the part of uh, Constantine Film and the team behind this movie to make it a very diverse cast, pulling from a lot of different cultures, specifically so that the film, you know, they had a mind towards it playing well globally. And I think that... Certainly, uh, we're six, seven films in, eight, nine films in at this point. You have to agree that that was a successful move for them, you know, do it cheap, make it global. And it was very much a global play. Domestically, Resident Evil only made 40.1 million. Really nothing to write home about. But as the overseas market evolved, this franchise really came to its own and became self-sustaining across decades. I think the thing with the Resident Evil series uh is that it's kind of the proto fast and the furious in a way it really um, is in yeah. in that you know the way that it approached casting the way that it introduces characters and kind of like recombines them and spins them off and you know developed this big wide network of uh kind of interlocked storylines it's very much the fast and the furious template before the fast and the furious movies did it themselves and that's kind of interesting um it's also intriguing in that it's it doesn't remain slavishly faithful to the game it it 
chooses some elements it picks and chooses it keeps a lot of the big iconography but then it changes a lot of things and in the end that kind of didn't really seem to matter because maybe in part because people were like wow Mia Jovovich really looks good in that PVC latex costume whatever is going on there okay let's go see this movie um like never underestimate that, that aspect and and you know that was spun into a massive franchise and and in fact uh you know Paul W Sanderson and Mia Jovovich getting married and having a family and continuing to partner you know they've partnered on more movies than I can count at this point uh not just Resident Evil movies so it's a really interesting thing it's too bad I don't think it's a very good movie, but, but it does like, you know, it does something that none of these other movies had managed to do before. And the fact that it doesn't really hit for me is irrelevant. Like it clearly hit for a lot of other people and it clearly was able to turn into something that stuck around. And uh, and that makes it pretty notable. Yeah, I mean, the the, the horror video game uh, adaptation during the first decade of the 21st century was, was definitely a very real thing. Uh, Daniel, as, as you mentioned, the first Resident Evil only got 40.1 million domestic, but internationally got 62.8 million. You have to imagine that's a factor in the green lighting, not only of Resident Evil's uh, mini sequels, but of films like uh, Silent Hill, Silent Hill Revelation, uh, Blood Rain, starring the... Um, Blood Rain, directed by uh, noted video game adaptation director Artur Uribol, about whom the less said, the better, so we're not going to discuss <laughs> his filmography. Um, but it, the, you definitely saw a, a very, you know, at the same time as you see something like Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, uh, Cradle of Life, which is like a big budget sequel to the first Tomb Raider, you're also seeing these kind of small, nimble, globally oriented, I mean, Horror is always a genre that, uh, you know, every culture likes to be scared in their movies a little bit, I think. so. And the problem is that the games are scarier than the movies. That's mm. really the big yeah. thing that these titles all face. If you're trying to cross right. over, I think that, you know, if you want to lure in the audience that loved the Resident Evil games or the Silent Hill games, uh, you know, the Resident Evil games were big hits. They're a big, big deal. And the games are really scary in a way that the movies are not but these are these are movies that are easy and cheap to make that are playing decently well in overseas markets they fulfill a role in the 2000s in just hitting the marks they have to hit of course that's a very different project than tomb raider and when lara croft tomb raider cradle of life the sequel to the 2001 film comes out in July 25th, 2003, it comes out at a very different time in the film industry. The first Tomb Raider comes out a little bit after the first X-Men movie, but crucially before Spider-Man. By the time Tomb Raider 2 comes out, you've got two X-Men movies and Spider-Man, which very clearly set the path forward for the film industry. It's going to be comic books, video games are going to take a backseat, and we see that in the performance of the sequel, Cradle of Life opening on July 25th, 2003 to 21.7 million, but only hitting half of the original's theatrical total in North America, 65 million. And then as you move forward past the, the Spider-Man and the X-Men movies, then you're also in the full flowering of internet fan communities. And in the you're in the Comic-Con era, you know, when companies are when studios and, and production companies are putting together movies and trying to sell them to this audience specifically. And it's amazing to be in the big Comic-Con rooms in the mid 2000s and see the pitch for like a Hitman movie or something and have it just fall flat. And it's like everybody can smell a mile away that it's that it's kind of a cash in, you know, everybody can smell that. It's just like, oh, we 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 see what you're doing here. We see that you think that we're easy and that we're going to show up to anything that is like we're going to show up to see Mark Wahlberg shooting guns in slow motion in the Max Payne movie. And you know what? No, we're not actually going to do that. 
This is definitely the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks era in, in video game adaptations. I mean, you have, like you said, you have Hitman in 2007, Max Payne in 2008, 2009, they try to bring back Street Fighter with Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. And then the very next year, 2010, you have uh, the regrettable uh, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. None of those really did anything in, in terms of box office. I mean, Prince of Persia got to, to 90.7 million, but that movie I, I cannot imagine was cheap to make. Oh God, no, no, no that's an expensive, <laughs> I mean, that's a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. That was yeah. a big deal in a, in a big bomb, you know, it's like- And that, I think there were legitimate attempts to franchise these movies that you just mentioned, Rebecca. Hitman was a successful video game franchise. Max Payne, it had this gritty noir type feel to it. Nope. And Street Fighter, <laughs> you know, you tried to do it with just focusing on one character instead of an ensemble telling one specific story that tanked Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li making $8.7 million total, total. These were movies that just weren't able to find any traction whatsoever. And at this point are completely overshadowed by fan communities that like Russ is saying, are more vocal and demanding on what they're seeing on screen to appeal to them. And it's, you know, it's, I think Prince of Persia is the, you know, in this decade really, and uh, there's about 10 years where Prince of Persia is both the biggest uh, possible success and also despite the fact that it made a couple hundred million dollars globally, um, it's the biggest bomb because it's like you're talking about the guy who directed Four Weddings at a Funeral making <laughs> a movie where Jake Gyllenhaal is is wearing linen and running around rooftops, you know, and hitting people with swords. It's just like it's it's so strange. And, it's and so you, bizarre. You, you do see the industry kind of put the brakes on the video game adaptation uh, a little bit after that. I mean, we had Need for Speed four years after Prince of Persia. That uh, I remembered at the time, kind of being marketed as like this is Aaron Paul's kind of first big post breaking bad, bad breakout. And, totally. and that was what made it a big quote unquote movie, right? Where we all remember Aaron Paul coming out of Breaking Bad and thinking, "What's he gonna do?" This is the this is the formula for stardom. We talked about it in the Batman podcast with someone like George Clooney. What's going to be that vehicle? He picks Need for Speed. It doesn't even make fifty million domestic, and mm-hmm. that just clearly doesn't work. So we find these streak of titles that just really aren't working. You try to put a TV star on there. It's still not working out. But then something interesting happens when we get to the summer of 2016 and Universal releases Warcraft. Warcraft in the evolution of these video game adaptations is an IP that exists in, am I saying this correctly, Russ? It's a massive multiplayer online. What's the term here? There are two sort of generations of games that inspired this movie. Um, One is a set of real-time strategy games uh, called, you know, the original game was called Warcraft. And then ultimately there was World of Warcraft, which is an MMO, which stands for Massively Multiplayer Online Game. And the popularity of World of Warcraft in the mid to late 2000s is virtually impossible to overstate. Um, It is a massive, massive, massive game by any standard. It's huge. And uh, I mean, this movie coming out, that was a huge deal. And it almost kind of felt like, why are they coming out with it so late? Why did it take them so long? And and I think what helped it is that the filmmaker was Duncan Jones, who had made the movie Moon, which generated, uh, you know, a lifetime of goodwill for him as a filmmaker. His follow up uh, source code was not nearly as well received. It's not nearly as good a movie, but like Duncan Jones is very likable. Uh, and it's, it's like he's a guy who I think a lot of people wanted to see succeed. You've got him doing this thing that could be like his own Lord of the Rings. The man loves and, Warcraft. Like he legitimately is a, a huge fan. He's a yeah, player. He's a fan. Yeah. It's, there, so there's actually a name director here with a following, one that cares about the IP, an IP that has global success. What happened here, guys? And again, uh, Russ, I'll say what you said before, uh, that our asterisk for a lot of these movies. It's a shame it wasn't better. Shame it's not a very good movie. <laughs> shame it's you know? not good. 
and neither was the box office. Uh, pretty good, 24.1 million opening weekend, but a $47.3 million domestic run. Overseas, a little bit of a different story. Rebecca's going to chime in with some of those insights, but Russ, I mean, what happened here? Um, I think a couple of things happened. I think that, I think this movie was cast kind of as if it were the you know fellowship of the ring being made which is to say it's a movie that could make stars out of people who had perhaps been character actors before um and in the end it could not do that uh you know the cast for warcraft was not enough to drive audiences in the end the vision of it it kind of looked like a generic sci-fi ish lord of the rings knockoff um, you know, visually it didn't really come together. And then the movie wasn't great. It didn't have a word of mouth to support it. And it's just like it, you know, it feels like a movie in which uh they kind of lost the forest for the trees. You know, it's like there's an amazing amount of detail created for this movie. Like you can tell they built all this armor and they did all this stuff, and you've got these CG orcs that are very expressive and look amazing, but some of it also looks kind of plasticky and then in the end when you really get down to it the story just isn't really there but overseas rebecca this actually performed decently well it was one of those early indicators that the chinese market plays by its own rules right it's and it's not even like you know the the general quote unquote overseas i mean like in russia it made around 22 million but that's really like the highest it's pretty much just china <laughs> where the film <laughs> made 225.5 million uh, off of a 65.1 million opening weekend. Um, this is a country where Warcraft, the game, was still much more popular than it was elsewhere in the world. So the IP was stronger. And I mean, really, yeah, Daniel, like you said, it was a, an early example of the things that we would see in other franchises. Like, I actually think I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago. I don't know why this movie keeps coming into my head, but the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which uh, got, you mm. know, didn't do well domestically, didn't do well with the critics, became a billion dollar film off the backs of overseas markets, mainly China, and then was able to, you know, that was able to secure the franchise a fifth installment. And after that, false start of Warcraft hitting the global marketplace. Another video game adaptation from Fox is also unable to break through at the box office, Assassin's Creed, coming out in December 2016. Plays out to 24.6 million. Yeah, I mean, Assassin's Creed, it kind of felt like it had that same Warcraft vibe of like, it, it is, Assassin's Creed is a very popular franchise, historical based with, you know, different iterations of the game taking place in different historical time periods. But it kind of felt like maybe the popularity had peaked a few years earlier. I'm, I'm just ticked at the movie because you have Jeremy Irons in it and he barely does any of the lovely hamming it up that he does so well, um, particularly in my favorite... Guys, I'm I'm I know that we cannot have it in this episode, but the you Dungeons want to talk and about Dragons Dungeons movie, and Dragons. yeah, it is it is a, an, a, it is a masterpiece Ooh. of Thora Birch's lost masterpiece. That was I, Thora Birch, right? That was Thora Birch, and it is a crazy film, and I love it, and it tanked, and it's fascinating, and <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about it because it is a adaptation of a tabletop game and not a video game. Not a video game. Well, exactly. I you know. <laughs> Assassin's Creed is, yeah, I think Assassin's Creed is is more like Prince of Persia than anything else. You know, it's like you've got a big name in it. You've got Michael Fassbender. You have uh, kind of an up and coming director uh, who's had an art house hit and is now moving into this thing. But it's just like Assassin's Creed was yet another example of sort of like, if you're going to do it, why don't you just go all the way in and do it? You know, it, it superficially looks and feels like uh, an Assassin's Creed game. But then in the end, it's not. And it's kind of like, well, why did you change some of this stuff? You've already gone this far. Why don't you just do the thing? Why don't you just go all the way? And that's where I think the the Tomb Raider movie that came out just a couple of years later with Alicia Vikander, 
does better. You know, it's like it has action set pieces that feel like the game plays, which is pretty cool and and unique in this landscape. Um, and it's not a great movie, but it is a better movie than you think it's going to be, in part because it does kind of manage to make her into a character. It makes a couple of other people in the movie into characters. And in the end, the 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 clash between those characters is what drives that film, even though it is kind of like an action and set piece type of movie. Um, and so it finds that X factor that is elusive to virtually all of the other movies that we're talking about today, right? I mean, it definitely, I mean, I can see the, the the shared DNA from Uncharted, which came out just a few weeks ago. It definitely feels like they have a very um, similar vibe, you know, someone kind of charismatic and talented doing this kind of new Indiana Jones action heavy set PC type thing. But before we get to Uncharted in the uh, 20-teens, we do have kind of another wave of the video game adaptation movie, which is those based more off of children's properties. Um, we have the Angry Birds movie, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the first movie, uh, first theatrically released movie based off of a mobile game. Is that right, Russ? I think so, yeah. And also, honestly, came way after the popularity of that game had peaked. You know, there was a point circa like 2009, maybe, when everybody was playing Angry Birds. Like, you're grandma was maybe playing angry birds like everybody was playing it you know anybody who had just got you know that smartphones were relatively new being able to game on your smartphone was very new and angry birds was by any metric a blockbuster uh mobile game it effectively you know i'm not going to say it created the mobile gaming economy but it certainly defined it in a lot of ways and so to have the Angry Birds movie come out way after the fact was kind of like, what are you, what are you guys doing? Like you missed it, but it's kind of a funny movie. It's like you're gonna make it, you're gonna have a Candy Crush movie and have it come out now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the thing is, the Angry Birds movie kind of maybe because they approached it as a kids animated sort of thing, like it, it, it sort of sidesteps. Uh, a lot of the video game movie problems. It has its own problems to deal with, but the end result is it's like it's kind of funny, and the sequel is actually funnier, uh, which is maybe the most unlikely thing I can think of that a, a game based on or a movie based on something that has even less story than a lot of the other video game movies uh, actually ends up being kind of entertaining. I think what's interesting here, guys, is that. The Angry Birds movie, looking at this list, is the first movie that they say, hey, let's make a video game movie for family audiences. Let's not make some guy with a gun trying to shoot people or a wannabe Bruce Lee movie. Let's just go ahead and make a family movie based on a game that children and adults play together. And it's a hit. 107.5 million domestic. The sequel doesn't do as well uh, later on. But uh, it starts this renaissance for the video game adaptation movement as films that don't have to be dark and gritty, maybe like some superhero movies are, <laughs> but can go for this wide, wide audience rampage from Warner Brothers coming out in 2018, 101 million. That streak continued by Pokemon Detective Pikachu, also from Warner Brothers in 2019, 144 million leading us right up to the release weeks before the onslaught of COVID restrictions around the world. Sonic the Hedgehog from Paramount released on Valentine's Day weekend 2020 to $58 million that opening weekend. It looked like it was going to be a great domestic run, but then our lives changed forever. Yeah. What are your takeaways of what might have been the last experience at the movies for many people around the world before the pandemic? Okay, so I've got two things. One is about Pikachu and one is about Sonic. Detective Pikachu is interesting because you talk about, like, it is clearly a movie oriented towards families, but Pokemon at this point is a multi-generational success. You know, you're talking about people who were kids in the 90s grew up, you talk about how anime now is popular in a way that is very different from the way it was popular in the 90s and 2000s. That is in large part because 
kids that grew up watching Pokemon and Dragon Ball in the 90s and 2000s are in their 20s and 30s now. And anime has the anime fandom has grown up with them. They never left that anime fandom in the same way that like some people who are fans of He-Man and Masters of the Universe in the 1980s are still fans of it now. Well, you know? Russ, how does Detective Pikachu coincide time-wise with Pokemon Go? Because that was a mobile game that was uh, gigantic. <laughs> I mean, that, that really felt like that kind of like phenomena. Everyone was playing Pokemon Go there. for Like, even I was playing Pokemon Go. I had never had any interest <laughs> in Pokemon at all. So it yeah, was definitely, I'm, you could tell it was time to be like part of this general reemergence of the franchise on a global stage not that it ever went away but pokemon is at this point it's a legacy property you know it's like you've got multiple generations of people who've grown up interested in and watching and actively either uh, playing the video games playing the card game watching the anime all of the above you know uh, so it's like pokemon is almost like it's well, it's not almost. I mean, it's the level of Mario in terms of where Mario is now as a level of IP. It might even be bigger. Yeah, I think it probably at this point, cross-platform, it probably eclipses Mario for Nintendo. This is Nintendo's big IP. The company that introduced home consoles into the world really doesn't have that same mind share that it used to in the 80s, in the 90s. That is now part of Sony, that is now part of Microsoft, that is now part of PC gaming or even mobile gaming. So yeah, when we talk about Pokemon, we really talk about what maybe Mario could have been, but never was. Maybe. And I mean, it could still happen. You know, it, it, there's a new Mario movie coming out in December from Illumination Entertainment. It, you know, is the company that animates the Minions and Despicable Me movies. It's got Chris Pratt as the voice of Mario, which is weird, but, you know, people know who Chris Pratt is. And and Nintendo itself has had a significant revitalization since the introduction of the Switch, which is its most recent console, which is, you know, this hybrid home handheld thing. But the, I think all of this is a long way to get around the fact that, again, I would... Now, I'm not looking at the global numbers for Detective Pikachu, but I would almost call that movie a disappointment because... You have this thing that is astonishingly popular, cross-generational, and you turn it into the Ryan Reynolds show, which I think, uh, you know, when the trailer comes out, it's sort of like, oh, this is an interesting thing and kind of neat. And then we return to our mantra for this episode, which is, it's too bad it's not a better movie. <laughs> I, I liked it, but yeah, it did. It did feel. I mean, it was definitely an interesting decision to essentially make it a Who Framed Roger Rabbit kind of uh, live action animation neo noir riff. <laughs> I appreciate a big swing, and and uh, internationally, it, it did make two hundred and eighty nine point uh, three million. About sixty six percent of its worldwide gross. Uh, came from international territories, so... And it might not have been uh, a huge box office hit or even lived up to its potential, but at the time, it was the highest grossing video game adaptation domestically of all time, with 144.1 million. And that was actually eclipsed by Sonic the Hedgehog in 2020, despite the onset of the pandemic. Sonic the Hedgehog topping out right under 149 million. And of course, the pandemic comes in and derails the potential of what Sonic the Hedgehog can make when it comes to 2020. And Sean mentioned it at the top of this episode. The Sonic movie ends up bookending this pandemic recovery period where we get into this crisis on the heels of its success and then emerge from the crisis with a movie that was made during the pandemic, greenlit, written, produced, and released in a world where COVID-19 is a reality. And I am just fascinated to see what happens with the performance. And we actually now have a couple of data points to see how video game adaptations can play out in this post-COVID marketplace. In between those two bookends, we have uh, the video game adaptation of the COVID era, that being Warner Brothers Mortal Kombat remake, which, uh, you know, 
COVID era went day and date uh, in theaters and on HBO Max. One of the first movies that did so. One of the first. I I hope I don't uh, have any have anyone walk up to me and slap me at CinemaCon. I did watch it on HBO uh, Max <laughs> because I, it did not look good enough to, for me to I go actually, pay money. This actually was. This actually was my first movie in a New York City cinema once New York reopened. It was a 4DX ticket at the Regal Union Square to watch Mortal Kombat. Well, I I want to compare our views of the movie then because I found it. I barely remember anything about this movie. I watched it. I watched it at home. I I do not remember it. Did, Did seeing it theatrically and having that like 4DX make it any better? Oh, no, it totally sucks. It's not a good movie at all. But it was an important movie going moment to have this movie released, have it in premium formats, coinciding with the opening of the New York market. If I'm not mistaken, L.A. was either opening or in that like halfway where like you had Orange County open. It was. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Yeah, I think it was in that like halfway period where some counties and what we call the Los Angeles DMA were open, but not everything. This was, at least for myself and other people, one of that first movie going experience that you could pay a premium ticket for. And we see it in that opening weekend number, 23.3 million. But as you guys mentioned, HBO Max completely derails its potential after its first week on the marketplace, topping out at 42.3. I think it's unfair to judge this on a box office level comparatively because of these market conditions. It did what it had to do at a time when not enough movies were hitting screens. And I commend Warner Brothers for releasing this day and date when it did. I mean, I think the thing about the the Mortal Kombat movie, and yeah, I would have really loved to see how it could have done purely theatrically in a more normal, quote unquote, marketplace, because it does all of the things that in a lot of ways, it does things that, you know, the other other game adaptations haven't done, which is that it does kind of stay truer to Mortal Kombat in a way it's bloody and gory, which the previous movies were not, which is a thing that Mortal Kombat audiences want. You know, you go to see a Mortal Kombat movie, you expect to see some nasty stuff. And this movie provides some of that. I don't know. Would it have cracked 100 million domestically? I mean, it was bad. It wasn't. Probably not. Yeah. And then that second title coming out during the pandemic, not that long ago, uh, in February 18, 2022, Uncharted from Sony being one of the very few theatrical releases that was widely marketed, that really came in to give cinemas something that wasn't Spider-Man No Way Home to succeed in its screens. That so, movie's so really it did been, have think, Spider-Man in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it also, yes, yes, yeah. it did star Spider-Man and Marky Mark. Let's not forget him. And you know what? It is one of the few success stories we have from the first quarter of 2022. I think we're going to look back on Uncharted as being one of the more important titles just because of the role it played in the marketplace when it was released. So the thing about Uncharted is that it fulfills a lot of the uh, same criteria that we've talked about with some of these other movies, which is that it's late. You know, it comes sometime after the popularity of the Uncharted games has peaked. It's not tied to like a new game release or anything like that, uh, you know, and also it changes a lot of things in ways that the fans of the game are sort of like, why did you why did you change this? You know, um, like there was a point where where Mark Wahlberg, the, the development of Uncharted is wild because there was a point where Mark Wahlberg was going to play the lead role. And then he ends up playing the mentor he ages figure. Out. You he know. ages out. He aged out. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, this movie has been uh, a revolving door of filmmakers, much the same way that Super Mario Brothers originally was. Uh, you know, it was going to be a David O. Russell movie at one point. What the? No. <laughs> yeah. No, that's an April Fool's joke, really. It was going to be a David O. Russell movie. That was when that Mark Wahlberg been was attached. Wow. That, that's, yeah. that's giving big Ben Wheatley doing Meg 2 vibes. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, Ben Wheatley was going to do a Tomb Raider sequel oh, prior that's to COVID. Right. Look at this. COVID shut the down movies, Ben Wheatley's t- Tomb Raider sequel. Aww. So the movies very we good, didn't Rebecca, get to see are unfortunately the, the, the movies here. I'd like to have seen. Yeah. And and I think that I think without Tom Holland, Uncharted bombs. Uncharted worked because of Tom Holland. 
Which, like, End to be fair, yeah, like, it's, it's a Sony film. Sony, Sony knew that. Sony played it smart. Sony played it very smart. It might have come out too late for the video game. It came out at the perfect time for the studio and its relationship to its star. Yes. I mean, that's yes. the franchise here is Tom Holland. Yes. That's the franchise. Yes. And by and large, it is a cross-quadrant hit. Audiences responded to it. It kept on coming out. It's still performing well in the top 10. And now we're in a position where... There's the Sonic sequel coming in, and as we just heard from Sean, there are positive expectations for this title coming out. Russ, I mean, to to close this conversation up, what do you think was it about that first Sonic movie that left such a good impression for audiences now coming out at the other end of the pandemic? Aside from Jim Carrey's mustache. (laughs) The Sonic movie has one of the most unusual trajectories of any movie, certainly a mainstream studio picture that I can think of ever, period, which is that the studio released a trailer, the first trailer, and people saw it and were like, what the hell is that? But then they changed it. They redid the movie, which is like people freaked out to the degree that they redid the movie, which is astonishing. And in a way, it's just like, in a way, it's kind of like, wow, are you sure you guys want to do this? Because you open this door, you're going to have to keep doing this. You know this, right? But I mean, the original Sonic was pretty was pretty bad looking (laughs) like they they made the Sonic character movie design look much more like sort of the animated version because there was an animated animated Sonic Hedgehog TV series. Like it looks more like Sonic, you know, It, it looks like the character that has been on video game covers and in games and in animation for decades. You know, you talk about like. Sonic goes back almost as far as Mario does. You know, Sonic was the face of Sega forever. I mean, Sonic was Sega's Mario when Sega launched the Genesis to compete with the Nintendo. And if, uh, if anyone wants Sonic. to wants to Google the various legal challenges that have existed over Sonic's life and uh, the uh, wider Sonic universe, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, there's some crazy stuff. There's wild stuff. (laughs) Yeah, there is. But, you know, the the thing of the movie design being changed because people complained about it is crazy. It's wild. And I mean, it made the movie better, probably, because I think it's a more approachable movie. It's it's, you know, obviously nobody has ever. Well, not nobody, but virtually no one has ever seen whatever the original version was. I'd love to see a leaked version of the full original design Sonic movie. Like at some point that's got to surface, right? There must be at least like a rough render of a bunch of that. So Sonic's an interesting story. And so I think how much did that affect the box office? Impossible to say, probably not a lot, but I mean, I think making it a friendly or more approachable design did affect the box office. I think that turned into a movie that, a lot more people wanted to go see instead of it being maybe a weirdo detective Pikachu sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, it definitely um, had to have been a case of no press is bad press. It certainly raised the profile of the film, at least amongst the terminally online set like myself. Exactly. It pointed it pointed to an engagement of a fan base that was interested enough to complain, but crucially to buy tickets after you catered to them. Yes. And that's not always the case. It's a massive risk you take. Paramount gambled, it worked, and now we're looking at a sequel that looks to improve on that $30 million opening weekend we saw two weeks ago from The Lost City. Last weekend's $40 million-ish Morbius opening weekend, Sonic 2 primed to open around that $50 million range. We'll see what those results are in next week's podcast, but I think this is a good place where we can put the pause button on this podcast episode looking over... All of these video game adaptations over the years, it's interesting that in such a vibrant industry here, when we talk about video games, the high watermark on the domestic box office is under $150 million domestic. I think there's a lot of potential, a lot of evolution that we'll see in the coming years making these into successful franchises. Well, thank you, Russ, Rebecca, and thanks again to our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, who joined us earlier on in the podcast. The Box Office Podcast is released every Thursday, so be sure to subscribe and tell your friends that we're doing this. It always helps when we get more downloads. 
We'll be here next Thursday featuring an interview with the CMO and CEO of Cinepolis USA as part of our Indie Influencer Series sponsored by Spotlight Cinema Networks. On behalf of everyone here at Box Office Pro, Box Office Studios, and the Box Office Company, thanks again for listening.